Perhaps you've heard someone speak about the authority of the believer, or maybe you've been encouraged to pray with more authority. Where does this idea come from, and is it biblical? Well, it's time for another edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Welcome to Focal Point, the Bible teaching ministry of Bible teacher Mike Fabares. Mike is senior pastor of Compass Bible Church in Southern California, and I'm your host, Dave Drewy. If you're a regular listener to Focal Point, you're familiar with Pastor Mike's expository teaching of Scripture. And at the end of the week, we set aside a special segment to meet with him on a more personal level to answer some questions from listeners like you. So now let's join Pastor Mike and Executive Director Jay Wharton for today's discussion. Jay? Well, thank you, Dave. I am here with Pastor Mike. And Pastor Mike, we have a question today from a listener, and he asks, how does the authority of the believer compare with submitting to God or trusting in God? Mm. That's a great question, a very popular question these days, too, because there's a lot of teaching about the authority we have as children of God. I mean, we are princes in the kingdom, they say, and so we should be able to have this authority to command and speak and change reality. And I think we got to be super careful with that. Is this the same kind of authority that we see the apostles using in the Bible? Well, they certainly will quote those examples. But I think we need to recognize that when the Bible shows us the pattern of the believer, there may be exceptions in how some of the apostles have done certain things in certain settings. But just as the believers are called to be dependent and reliant upon prayer, which is one of our values here at our church, we recognize prayer is the mechanism of me speaking with God and requesting. Even the word prayer means requesting. I'm begging God. I'm asking God. I'm requesting of God. I'm earnestly petitioning God to do something. That's different than what has so easily become a hijacking of Christianity even as early as the first century, as some kind of uh, empowerment of my life to basically will my agenda on the reality around me. Think about when Second Peter and Jude talk about the false prophets, and it speaks of those who go around commanding things and rebuking things, and they have this commitment to a self kind of imposed will on everything around them. And then the apostles say, well, compare that to even Michael the archangel when confronted with Satan himself over the body of Moses, where he doesn't rebuke him directly, but he says, the Lord rebuke you. I mean, that's the concept. And that may seem semantical to some people, but it's not. What we're doing is appealing to God who may or may not choose to respond to my request, asking in faith, believing, but I don't know the will of God. And so I can't always have the confidence that this is what God will choose to do. The Apostle Paul prayed to have this thorn in his flesh healed. He asked to take it away. He's the apostle. Take it away, take it away. He didn't rebuke the demon of the thorn and have it go scurrying away because he has some inherent power to command things like Jesus does. No, he asks Christ to heal his body, to which God decides in his infinite wisdom, according to his will, no, 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 three times. And then he recognizes God has a bigger plan and a different plan, and therefore he's going to submit to that plan and recognize that God's grace is sufficient for him. Now, we quote that a lot because it's a great example of someone who has apostolic authority but doesn't go around commanding things and expecting them to happen. He couldn't command the thorn in his flesh to go away. 
So we have authority in that we have access to the throne room of God and we should boldly come before the throne and we ought to give God our requests and we ought to seek that help from him in our time of need. But we don't become presumptuous. There's a deference to the will of God. There's a humility in our praying. We're asking God to do these things, even though we're asking by faith believing because we recognize that God ultimately is the one who's going to make these decisions about whether we're going to be healed or get this job or get this promotion or whatever. So where is the balance in that? Certainly we don't just sit back and let God do whatever. We have right. some action that we take. Of if course. we need a job, we yep. write a resume, we yep. send it out, we pound the pavement. Right. So how do we strike that balance? Well, this authority doctrine that this listener is writing in about, it goes beyond that. What we would certainly commend is that everyone should work hard they should uh, commit their work to the Lord, as Proverbs says, which is a great Hebrew word about rolling it over to God. We're letting God have the credit for the success of all that we do. So yes, we work hard, we do our work to the glory of God, we have a Christian work ethic, and we trust the Lord for the outcome. And when it does happen, right, we give God the credit for it. We can't look back at our own authority and say, well, we have this authority that has accomplished these things. So my authority is all derivative. If I ask my kids to clean their room, I do have an authority. I'm their father, and I got that authority from God. He's placed me over them as the father. Uh, but that doesn't mean necessarily that my kids are going to do what I ask. I'm going to have to do the best I can to enforce that, right, even to discipline if I have to. But it doesn't mean just because I have resident authority in my home as the father and I can ask my kids to do something, and therefore I know no matter what the opposition to my son's doing what I'm asking them to do, they're going to do it. Right? I, I don't know that. And, and I'm going to trust the Lord when I exercise my authority, and I'm going to hope that he uh, would go before me and see these things accomplished. But there's a deference in that. There's a humility to that. And that's different than this kind of what's been going on for centuries, this kind of uh, sense of inherent authority that we have, that because we have it, we can exercise it at will and have things happen and expect them to happen just because we willed it to be. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. And we're offering your book called Lifelines for Tough Times, which maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, that fits perfectly with what we're talking about on this uh, listener's question. Right Here was my daughter diagnosed with a severe birth defect. And even now, as late as yesterday, I was literally at lunch yesterday on my off day with my daughter in her wheelchair with her braces up to her thighs. And I had a guy come up with a big cross around his neck. We were in downtown LA, or near downtown at least. And here he comes wanting to fix my daughter's problem. And I guess I should appreciate the well-meaning intentions of this guy, but we've encountered so many of these because my cute little daughter is sitting there clearly not normal and, and in a wheelchair and not like every other girl. And so they come out of a sympathy to want to fix it, but they're coming you know, with his big cross around his neck to command things to happen. And the bottom line is much like the apostle Paul, whatever his problem was, maybe it was related to his eyes when he said to the Galatians that they would be willing to gouge out their eyes for him. But if it wasn't according to the will of God, it's not going to happen. And that's why I appreciate Johnny Erickson Tata endorsing my book. I, I added a quote from her on the front cover of the book because I'm so grateful for the fact that a woman like that knows what it is as a Christian who suffered so much that even though people may say, well, I want you to have the faith to believe that God can fix this. And of course he could. He, he could make the sun stand still. He could make manna show up on my lawn this morning for my meal. But, you know, I got to understand it's not always his will to do that. And it's not his will for me this morning to find my bread on the lawn. I got to go to the grocery store. And in my case, my daughter's uh, severe and serious and 
her spinal problem are not going to be fixed just by uh, someone willing it to be so. Only God could do that, and God has chosen and made clear that he's not doing that. And so we understand, as Paul said, his grace is sufficient for us. And just as Johnny Erickson Tata is still in her wheelchair and my daughter, as we go about our work, uh, still in hers, we recognize that God's grace is sufficient. And that is really what the book is about, trying to reconcile the goodness, the plan of God that is good, the power of God that could change these things but chooses not to, recognizing and affirming all those things in light of some very difficult things in this life. And I hope the book is an encouragement to people. I mean, whether you're dealing with some financial problem or some relational issue or some physical problem. I just hope the book is helpful for you. It's a biblical perspective I would trust that would hearten you even if the pain doesn't go away. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. We are going to finish our time today with a message that fits right in with this book, and it's called God's Presence and Help When You Hurt. I'm here to talk about lifelines, which unfortunately is a word that probably is most often associated in our day with a television show. Remember the old game show, uh, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Well, you should know it because it was the most successful international television franchise of all time. So I know you've seen it, and you know that when you get stumped on a question, you had Regis asking you if you wanted a lifeline. So you could go 50-50, remember that? Got the uh, solutions in half, the answers in half, and and you could guess. Or you could ask the audience, remember that? Everybody would poll in their little doodad or whatever that was. Or then you could ask a friend, which was always the one I thought, well, you got to do, especially if you have a super smart, reliable, trustworthy friend that you can call who can give you the answer. I thought, well, that's the one that seems the most sure, depending on what kind of friend you have. Lifelines, that's how they were used in popular game show TV culture. But when I think about lifelines for people in trouble, I think about the trouble that exists in our world, in this very turbulent world we live in. Everybody's got trouble at one time or another, and some people have very serious troubles. They have relational problems, they have physical problems, they have financial problems, and there's a lot of trouble out there. And when there is a need, uh, just to make the analogy here maybe a step too far, I think to myself, it would not be good for you to guess your way through it, even if the odds are 50-50. Certainly wouldn't want to, knowing the track record of the world's popular opinion, I wouldn't want to rely on surveys and polls and the majority view on things. But here's the good news, I have a friend that you can call. And this friend, according to the Bible, is uh, omniscient, omnipotent, faithful, always reliable, and only speaks the truth. And he's provided in his word a great set of lifelines, if you will, to provide us help when your life takes a left turn, when life is difficult. And then secondly, remember the analogy of lifelines. While someone's there bobbing in the water for their lives, you need someone on the deck with sure footing to toss them a lifeline. So if I'm not speaking directly to you because your life is peachy and everything's going well, then remember this. There are people all around you. Matter of fact, it'd be good for you to stop and just think right now. Who in your sphere of influence is hurting? Who is struggling? Who's in pain? Who's having difficulty right now? Without just focusing every sermon on ourselves, maybe it's good for us to sit back and say, I need to be equipped to toss out and extend to them something that will help pull them out of the quagmire of the difficult pains and feelings they're having right now. And with that said, let me turn you to Romans chapter 8 to look at three lifelines in this passage that will help either you or someone you know make it through the difficult times in their lives with the kind of perspective the Bible says we all as followers of Christ should have. 
And he says, I consider that the sufferings, this is Romans 8.18, are you with me on this? I consider that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now that's a word we talk about every time we run into it, it's just a word that's so broad. But this is all about the good things that God wants to lavish on his people, often spoken of in terms of glory. His gracious gift of God to bring to your life everything that he has promised. Anytime you look at a promise about the future, about the coming kingdom, about the new Jerusalem, about being face to face with God, all of these ideas have to do with this thing that can be all under the heading of glory. The glory that's to be revealed to you when you really think about it, Paul says, is so big that it makes the suffering kind of get itself in perspective. As I like to say, the bad in your life is nothing compared to the goodness of the good that God has planned for you. And that's a perspective we all need in difficult times. But let's not forget this, because I want to anchor these in the character of God. You get those good things from God as an act of grace. Grace, obviously, if you've been around the church, you understand this, is when God merits to us or favors us, gives us blessing that we do not deserve. This is not because we earn it. This is because God grants it out of his mercy and his kindness. It's called grace. And when we as Christians, particularly our flavor and, and emphasis of Christianity, our corner of Christendom, we're always talking about being recipients of God's grace. And all I want to say in challenging that for just a second is that the real grace that we're recipients of, most of it is in the future. I mean, I understand right now we can say, isn't it great that we're forgiven of our sins? And you are. Judicially, forensically, legally forgiven of your sins, you are a recipient of grace. It is great that you are reconciled to God relationally. But as Paul said, it's through a mirror dimly. It's through a glass that's hazy, but then face to face. The great thing about the Christian life is the best is yet to come. And it's not in this life, see? It's the promise of the coming grace to be revealed to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if the backdrop is suffering, a focus on that, as Colossians 3 says, keeping my mind on things above, makes the suffering in this present world incomparable. I, I, I can't even compare it. It's so small when I really look at how good the good is going to be. And it's all an act of grace. Let's put it this way. After all that, let's hone it into this one phrase. Jot this down as number one. You and I, lifeline number one, the unchangeable truth for Christians is that we need to anticipate God's extravagant grace. You've just had a taste of it. The grace of God you have now, it's good, but it's going to be lavished on you in an extravagant way that'll be so good, you'll think the grace that we have now of being able to pray and have God hear us, of it being forgiven and not having guilt because of our sin, it'll be nothing compared to when our faith is sight and the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And when you put your suffering in comparison with that, everything changes. That's something to hang on to. That's something the Bible's always trying to get us to do. Set your hope on things above. Get your focus beyond the horizon of your struggles, your trials, and even your entire life here on this earth. Start thinking a little bit more heavenly minded. Second lifeline, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He says, hey guys that are suffering, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now that's an amazing statement. You've had that quoted at you, I assume, by some godly person in the midst of your suffering, and sometimes it rings hollow. Sounds like a, a trite platitude, but it's not a wish. It's a promise. We know this. This is a certainty. 
that if you love God, which is the definition of a Christian, called according to his purpose, the end of the verse, here's the assurance that we have. God works most things together for good. Underline the word most. Do you see that there? Is that what it says? All things. How can that be? Here's how it can be, because there's something else about the character of God you need to hang on to in tough times. God is a God that is really good at orchestrating everything. As the Old Testament says, his sovereignty rules over all. And you need to recognize this. When it comes to God orchestrating things for his children, those that love him and are called according to his purpose, he knows exactly what he's doing. There's nothing out of the purview of God in terms of the circumstances of your life as contradictory as that feels that if he's a good God, why is this bad thing happening to me? God is perfectly sovereign. And that should bring us some comfort in the midst of our difficulties. As strange as that may sound, I would ask you to jot it down. Number two on your outline, let's put it this way. We need to trust in God's perfect sovereignty. What's he doing? He's promising that whatever's happened, even the bad things, he's going to work these together like some master chef to bring something out of that that he considers good. Now you're going to have to say, Pastor Mike, you better define what the word good means because it doesn't seem very good, the things that I'm going through. Here's what I'm saying. It will result in good. How in the world can I hold on to this lifeline in the midst of my trial? Well, practically speaking, I'm looking for the good in the midst of the suffering. And the first good I'm going to look for is how is this shaping me to be more like Christ? Am I becoming any more hopeful, any more faithful, any more godly? Is my character being tried and tested and improved through all of this? And I'll bet there's very few trials that for genuine Christians, you can't look at in the mirror and say, that's happened. I've matured through this. I've become someone with a greater sense of trust in God through all this. And we've got to look for that. That's the good God wants to produce. God is not wanting us, look at this, his goal for you in your trial is not to keep you happy in your trial. It's to make you holy through your trial. That's the point. And if we look at our trials through that lens and say, how in the world is this happening? It starts to become something we can even say, you may be falling short of the word rejoicing in your suffering, but at least you'll say, you know what? I look back on it now and I say, I'm glad that happened. It really produced something in my character. I don't know how God would have ever produced without it. That's the kind of perspective that we need because God has promised to work it out. He said he will, in his perfect sovereignty, allow everything you ever encounter, as painful as it may be, to work out for good. Number three, third lifeline. Drop down to verse 35 in Romans 8. We've looked at God's grace. We've looked at God's sovereignty. Those are strong pillars of support in the midst of my trial. How about one more that kind of reaches over all of them. Who shall separate us from, here's the word, the love of Christ. See, now, you're struggling in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, negative, but really, is that going to sever this relationship of love that you have with Christ? As a matter of fact, because of the love of Christ and all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, there's nothing, verse 38 says, neither life, death, angels, rulers, things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's an indomitable, immutable, invariable love that no matter what's going on in your life, the Bible says here is love that will never change for you. Number three, write it down even if you don't buy it yet. Okay, number three. Rely on God's invariable love. And you may want to underline the word or put it in quotes, love, because I know we misdefine that. And because we misdefine it, we can't make sense of it. 
How can I have my marriage collapse if God loves me? How can I be diagnosed with a disease that's so debilitating and painful if God loves me? You need to redefine love in your mind. Here's biblical love when we're speaking of divine love for us. It is a commitment to your well-being. It is a resolve to your good. If love to you is a green fuzzy or some emotional goosebump, and you'll think, well, if he has an emotional goosebump for me, he'd never let this pain into my life. Don't define love as an emotional goosebump. Here's what love is. God is committed to your good, just like he was committed to Christ's good and using Christ, his own son, for good. But as Acts 2 says, through the definite plan of God, he was delivered over to the hands of sinful men. This was God's sovereign plan for him. It wasn't because the father didn't love him. It's because the father was going to utilize his life, the life that he loved, to do good in this world. And he'll do the same in your life. And sometimes it will involve pain. The commitment that he has for good is not good feelings. It's not happiness. It's not prosperity in this life. All of those things will have to be put on hold. You may or you may not experience them in all varying degrees. The point, though, is that God is committed to your good. When it comes to the truth that Christ loved us, he proved it on the cross. And you may be questioning it in the middle of the storm, but we don't vary on the things that God has proven to us. Now that's just a quick summary of some lifelines that I hope you can hang on to or that God can use in and through your life to be a help to someone else. Do you see how they're all rooted in the character of God? His grace, his sovereignty, his love. Those things don't change even though the circumstances of our lives change. Pray with me, please. God, we do appreciate so much the comfort that we derive in the Bible when we stop looking so much at our painful circumstances and we think about how we can get through our painful circumstances with courage, hope, and faith that one day, if we are trusting in Christ, we will march through the gates of the new Jerusalem and we will have there everything that we've ever desired and all the pain, the suffering, the mourning, the crying, it's all gonna be done. So God, let us, as you said there, through the pen of, of Isaiah and Isaiah 65, let us rejoice now in what you're gonna create then. And we'll be thankful for that, come what may. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares on Focal Point with a message called God's Presence and Help When You Hurt. Pastor Mike will be back in just a moment, so stick around. But first, if you're going through a rough patch, you may wish to purchase a copy of the book that Jay and Pastor Mike discussed earlier in the program. It's a helpful book called Lifelines for Tough Times. In it, Mike shares from his deeply personal experience about how to cling to God's Word during the storms of life. Lifelines for Tough Times is available at focalpointministries.org books. Well, I think most of us would love to escape our pain, but often God's not after pain relief. He wants to purify our hearts. And that's why at Focal Point, we're committed to helping you explore God's complete, unadulterated Word. If you believe in the value of this Bible teaching, will you reach out with a gift of support today so we can continue bringing these messages to hungry souls nationwide? 
Right now, when you give generously, we'll say thanks by sending you A.W. Tozer's classic book, Men Who Met God. It's a compelling collection of sermons featuring seven biblical figures who encountered God. And it's our gift to you when you give to Focal Point by calling 888-320-5885. That's 888-320-5885. Or you can give online at focalpointradio.org. Well, now as promised, here's Pastor Mike again with a special invitation. Mike? Hi, Pastor Mike Fabar is here. In the summer of 2024, I'll be teaching the Bible on a seven-day cruise to Alaska. I want you to come with me. From August the 4th through August the 11th, 2024, we're going to discover the splendor of God's Word while we explore the rugged beauty of the Alaskan coast. Join us for world-class dining, daily teaching, worship. It'll be an unforgettable experience. So don't wait to book your spot. Visit focalpointministries.org slash Alaska to learn more. Thank you, Pastor Mike. It's going to be an exciting trip. To get more information or to book your suite, go to focalpointministries.org slash Alaska. Well, I'm your host, Dave Drewy. So glad to have you with us. Be sure to come back again next time as we continue exploring God's Word right here on Focal Point. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.